It's the Dockiverse Podcast, episode number 36, Pie Boy Goes to Castro Street. In this episode, we've got a monster movie review, the final room of the five-room dungeon, more RPG prompts, and, as always, commentary. And we'll get things started just as soon as I go outside and see what time it is. It's still noon. Hello there, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Doc Cross, and I hope you've all had a great few days, however long it was between the last podcast and this one. I have had a pretty good uh, week myself, although the temperature today, which is Monday, the 21st, is hot again. Not super hot. It's probably 94 outside, but still, after a couple of days in the 70s, yeah, it seems a little hot. Before we get into the episode, and by the way, in the commentary section, I will be discussing changes coming to the podcast. But before that, of course, I want to thank my wonderful, sweet, lovely patrons over on Patreon. They support the podcast. They get free PDFs if they want them. They get to hear mini podcasts. I love them. So thank you, David, Avis, Bruce, Jame, Marion, and Mark. You guys are great. Couldn't do it without you. So now, being how it's Monday, it is time for the Monster Movie Review. And this time we're starting off with about five reviews of what I call watery wonders. These are creatures that come up out of the ocean, raise hell, Stomp cities, eat people, whatever. And the quality of the movies ranges from excellent to, well, somewhat less than excellent. And the first one we're going to talk about is really just about the granddaddy of giant creatures out of the ocean movies because it's The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. It was made in 1953. It's an American science fiction giant monster film. It was directed by Eugene Laurie, and by the way, his name will come up more than once here in this series. And the special effects were by Ray Harryhausen. He had some other people helping him, but you can see Ray all over. The film stars Paul Christian, Paula Raymond, Cecil Kellaway, and Kenneth Toby, another name that's going to pop up a couple times. And the story is based very, very loosely on Ray Bradbury's short story from 1951 called The Foghorn, specifically the scene where the lighthouse is destroyed by the title character. That's really the only part of the movie that has the slightest thing going for it as far as being based off the short story. Now, the film concerns a fictional dinosaur, the Redosaurus, which is released from its frozen hibernating state by an atomic bomb test in the Arctic Circle which is a stupid place to test an atomic bomb, but, you know, it was the 50s, it was monster movies, what can you do? The beast, of course, starts stomping on everything and killing people and migrating from the cold-ass Arctic Circle down to warmer climates, which happen to be New York City. And the reason it ends up in New York is because it's following its ancient migration route, which went through the Hudson Canyon, where, as we find out in the movie, is the only place that fossils of this dinosaur have ever been found. Now, the dinosaur itself is not based on any real dinosaur. It's got a head sort of like a 
T-Rex. It's got a body that walks on four legs, but is substantially different than a real quadruped dinosaur. Anyway, the monster goes to New York. A lot of crazy stuff happens. You guys have probably seen the movie. If you haven't, you really need to, because this is one of the best giant creature movies out there. There are some interesting facts about this movie. The very first fact is that this movie came out in 1953, and Godzilla, Gojira actually, came out in 1954. Guess what? This movie inspired Godzilla. This was admitted by the people that made Godzilla, so I'm not making this stuff up. Another thing about the movie is that you will see Lee Van Cleef, famous actor of lots of spaghetti westerns and other shows, and he plays a guy at the end, corporal in an army, who happens to be a sharpshooter. The climactic roller coaster live-action scenes at the end were filmed on location at the Pike in Long Beach, California, a place my mom used to go to with my dad and my aunt uh, when they lived there before I was even born. The movie itself is, like I say, it's an excellent movie. It's the first of the giant atomic monster movies. I don't think there was another one. I don't remember hearing about one, and there's never one mentioned anywhere. It was, like I say, a seminal movie. So if you're going to watch giant monster movies, this is one you have to watch, along with King Kong, Godzilla, and a few others. One other interesting fact about this movie in relation to Godzilla is that the monster in this movie was supposed to have an atomic flame, similar to Godzilla's atomic heat beam. Well, they didn't put that in the movie because the budget wouldn't cover it. But the people who did Godzilla and who read a short story based on Beast from 20,000 Fathoms said, yeah, okay, we'll give Godzilla an atomic flame breath. So, Godzilla, you're welcome. So like I said, folks, this movie is great. It's on the American Film Institute's top 10 science fiction film lists. So if you have not seen it, go see it. Well, 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 here we are at the five-room dungeon, and it is room number five, the reward, revelation, or plot twist room. And in this case, it's just pure reward because your people probably got their butts kicked, more or less, in the previous room, where they did all the fighting. So when they get into this room, they see a clockwork gnome. And he's standing around, and there's not much in the room. There's some chairs they can sit in. They're nice and comfy chairs. There's a table, a little bit of food and drink on it. Um, simple stuff, you know, some fruit, some water, things like that. And then the gnome comes along, and he shakes everybody's hand and congratulates them on making it through the dungeon. He also tells them that they will not be allowed back in the dungeon for at least one calendar year. And then he dispenses 100 gold pieces, two healing potions, and a scroll of two third level spells. Then he tells them, enjoy their refreshments, and they can leave whenever they want to. And the exit door appears. Now you can alter this, give them a little more stuff, give them a little less, depending on you know, what your party needs or what they're like. Uh, you can goose up the food a little, maybe give them wine instead of water, ale, I don't know. But if one of your players decides, hey, you know what? I'm going to have my character go knock the crap out of this clockwork gnome. 
You should have the clockwork gnome release a gas that knocks them all unconscious, and they wake up out in the boonies, not on the island, completely off the island, back on the mainland, with not only none of the reward that they would get, but they should lose a couple of things, just to teach them a lesson. Anyway, that's the room. It's just simply a reward. Next time, when we start the new five-room dungeon, it's not going to be a dungeon. It's going to be a small town in the Old West, and we'll see what happens there. Now we move on to RPG prompts, and we're doing full sentences, and here are the two full sentences for this time. The first one is, what gives a game staying power? Well, in my opinion, it's often the first game you play. I know most people, not all, but most people my age started off with D&D. So that's the one that has staying power. That's the one we come back to. Maybe we don't come back to all the additions. Certainly I did not play fourth more than twice. I don't think I played third at all. Maybe once. I'm not sure. But you keep coming back to D&D. People that started with the RuneQuest, that's the game they come back to. Call of Cthulhu, Traveler, whatever. They come back to the games they started with. That's what gives a game staying power as far as our emotions are concerned. As far as actual staying power via the game itself, that can have a lot to do with the setting, if there's a built-in setting, or the supplements that expand on the setting or the rules, because a lot of people like to expand on rules and get things crunchy. It might have to do with just the support. Um, is a game well supported? You might stick with that. It gives it staying power. Is you know the game here after 25 years, or is the game gone after two? That has a lot to do with it. So that's staying power. I think we know what games have staying power. Our favorite games have staying power. The good games have staying power. The bad games, not so much. Our next prompt is your most memorable NPC. That's a hard one because lots of times my NPCs are just a generic NPC that I retool for different game sessions, different campaigns, even different rule sets. I mean, Joe, the informative hermit that lives out in the boondocks, sometimes he's Joe the hermit. Sometimes he's old Krusty the Miner. Sometimes he's Billy the Shoeshine Boy. Sometimes he's that old witch that maybe lives out in a swamp. But it's still the basic same character. He's an information dump. There are a few that I've had that have come back over the years, um, depending on the group. With my San Jose group, the little white dog, who I've spoken of before, um, was a recurring NPC. He would pop up every once in a while when I wanted to make him a little paranoid or just have them run around trying to see what they could do with this dog. I also have certain other NPCs that come back often. In my D&D games, that would be Ul Mendrigar, who is a wizard, and he's popped up in pretty much every D&D campaign I've ever run, with the exception of the one in Ravenloft. Ul is a world-class wizard. He's... You know, Albus Dumbledore, Merlin, whoever, level. He's right up there. 
And he usually hires the PCs to do something for him. Sometimes he's the person who trained whatever mage is in the party. And sometimes he's just a guy they encounter because he's off doing some research or something. So Ool is, yeah, he's probably the one that's popped up the most. I also have a villain, the villain Shandar Khan, who is also a wizard and who is evil and who studied right alongside of Ool when they were young, but went down the path of evil and badness, and he and Ool have been at each other's throats for two or three centuries. He is a bad guy. He's sort of a cross between Fu Manchu and Voldemort. So those are my main recurring NPCs because they're the ones that have names and they always have the same name. Like I say, most of my NPCs are just generic and their name changes hither and yon. Very seldom do I even remember what their name was the first time. And my players will often say, wait, wasn't that guy named Charlie last time we talked to him? And then Charlie will tell them, yeah, yeah, but, uh, you know, stuff happens. I'm using a different name now. So that's how I cover my ass on that. So that's the RPG prompts for this episode. And now we'll move on to something else. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, this commentary is all about changes that are coming to the podcast. Now, these aren't enormous changes. I'm not going to make it any longer. I'm not going to start having guests yet. What I'm going to do is I'm going to differentiate between the Monday episode and the Friday episode. They've been very similar, with the exception of the Monster Movie Review on Monday. Well, that's all going to change on October 1st. Monday is still going to have a Monster Movie Review. It's still going to have a five-room dungeon. But it's going to also have a new spot called a three-box problem. And what I've done is I borrowed something from Adrienne Hedger, who does Hedger Humor, a great little comic strip where she mostly does humor based on her family, but every once in a while, she does a thing where she draws words and phrases from different bowls. She's written them on pieces of paper, and she gets things like feisty potato chip riding a bike, and she'll do a comic strip based on it. Or maybe angry potato walking the dog, and she does a comic strip on it. That's what I'm doing. So I will pick a situation, I'll pick a mood or a state of being, and then I'll pick a something man, woman, dwarf, dog, cat, whatever. And when I put them all together, I'll come up with an adventure idea, maybe even a campaign idea. And I'll throw it out there and y'all can decide what you want to do with it. Now that's Monday. The next one we've got is, of course, Friday. And on Friday, we still have RPG prompts and we still have commentary. But in between them, we have something called the Friday Grab Bag. And that means I will choose a book, a piece of music, food, movies, whatever I feel like, and I will talk about it in some depth. Depending on what I choose, I could go into a lot of depth, hopefully not for more than about five minutes. So that's how things are going to be laid out. I've pretty much divided up how the podcasts have been, separated them into two days, and added a couple of new things. Now, I also had someone ask me in a message on Facebook if I was going to do anything in the podcast like interviews or 
guest hosts or location recordings, stuff like that? Well, the answer is eventually. I don't know when I'll be doing interviews because that's a little more tricky than me sitting here in my kitchen and recording like I do. But I will do some at some point. And my best estimate for that will be Dundercon. I will be doing some sort of recording at Dundercon, but I'm not sure how much or how I'm going to do it. Uh, the laptop I have now, which is actually a little Chromebook, is gutless, and so I can't really use it for a lot of things. I don't know if I'm going to have the money to buy another laptop or if I'll just record stuff on my phone and do it that way. But I will be doing some interviews, some sort of man on the street, talking to uh, people at Dundercon, see how they feel coming back after two years of not having the con. As far as having any sort of location recording, well, that's one. But I may take this out on the road. I may record from a game store. I may record from a park. I've been thinking about stuff like that. That's, again, all dependent on me getting another laptop, which would be much easier if some of you people would support me more on Patreon. Not you Patreon supporters, you're doing great. I'm talking about the people who are listening right now on Anchor, because it's free. Come on over, do the Patreon, get Uncle Doc some bucks, let him buy a laptop. I'll buy you a beer if I see you at a con, unless you don't drink, or you're underage, in which case I'll buy you a soda. Anyway, that's what's coming up for the podcast, and... Oh, one other thing. I've been using the same piece of music all month, and I'm going to do that when November comes around. But, for October... I have a bunch of spooky, weird music that I'm going to play at the start of each podcast. Each one should be different, and hopefully you'll enjoy them. That's it for commentary, and now we come around to the part of the program where we end the program. And I want to thank you all for listening. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Docverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com, or if you're listening via Anchor, you can leave a voicemail. If you'd like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts two weeks before they go up on Anchor, go to www.patreon.com forward slash dot cross, and for as little as a buck a month, you're in. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast because you're a wonderful person, or advertise on it because you want to hear me wax enthusiastically about your product or service, get in touch with me by any of the methods I just mentioned, and we will work a deal out. Our music for this month has been Boogie Woogie Bed by Jason Shaw, off of Audionautics.com, and as always, as I tell you every month, this podcast and everything on it, except the music, is copyright 2021 by Doc Cross. Let's try to remember that. I'm getting tired of saying it.